Today I'm speaking with the writer and journalist A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, The Know-It-All, The Year of Living Biblically, The Guinea Pig Diaries, and most recently, It's All Relative. He's the editor-at-large of Esquire magazine, also contributor to NPR, and he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other journals. And we talk about many of the topics he's touched over his career. We talk about his full immersion approach to journalism, the way he performs elaborate experiments on himself. Uh, We talk about religion, gossip, polyamory, health advice, how to think about one's past and future selves, the ethics of honesty and what's been called radical honesty, his recent adventures in human genealogy in his new book, its connection to tribalism, and many other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you A.J. Jacobs. I am here with A.J. Jacobs. A.J., thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. So you are um, really a unique sort of writer. I mean, I'm sure there are other people who take a similar approach, but I can't name them off the top of my head. You, you go into each book and to some of your articles more or less determined to perform a, a very elaborate and sometimes painful psychological experiment <laughs> on yourself and presumably everyone you care about. We're going to run through some of these topics you've touched, but first, just summarize your approach here and describe your, your background as a writer. Yeah, as you said, I am a writer and a journalist, and what I like to do is I immerse myself in an idea or lifestyle and then report back what I've learned. So, for instance, I spent a couple of years trying to be the healthiest person alive. Uh, I spent another trying to follow all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. For my new book, I, I wanted to help build the world family tree, which is the, a family tree with millions of people all connected. Uh, and hopefully soon we'll be all seven and a half billion people on earth. Uh, so yeah, that's my, uh, people call it experiential journalism, immersion journalism, whatever, but it's a, it's a good job. It's a fun job. I think we should go th- through each of these because they're, they're quite different and, and they're independently interesting. Was your first, the year of living biblically? Actually, no, my first was where I, uh, decided I was woefully ignorant, so I oh, right, right. tried to remedy it by reading the Encyclopedia from A to Z, Encyclopedia Britannica, when it still existed in print form. I don't recall. How far did you get? Did you get to Z? Well, yeah, I don't want to, you know, spoilers, but yes, I did get uh-huh. to Z. I got to, uh, the last word is Zivich, a se- town in south-central Poland. And how long did that take? That took over a year and a half of reading uh, about six or seven hours a day. Was that a painful ordeal mostly, or was it an incredibly enriching, guilty pleasure that you were just amazed that you could get paid to do? I mean, what, where, where did it fall in the, the pleasure index? I would say both. At times, it was incredibly painful, uh, including for my wife, who started to, uh, she fined me $1 for every irrelevant fact I inserted into conversation. So uh, she made a lot of money. But, uh, but at other times, it was a pure joy. And actually, one of the big takeaways was it it did make my life better. uh, And it was partly because reading about the full sweep of human history, it really was clear to me that the good old days were not good at all. They were disease-ridden, violent, 
sexist, racist, dirty, smelly. Uh, so, you know, uh, Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, I got to, I, I sort of saw that uh, through reading the encyclopedia. And it just made me, even when I'm feeling down, even just this three word phrase, surgery without anesthesia. Yeah. Surgery without yeah. anesthesia. That yeah, it brings you back. That yeah. just, it really does. <laughs> So, yeah, it was overall an uplifting experience, if not for my wife. And how much would you say stuck? Is there a lasting benefit to it? <laughs> Do you have a sense of, of what it did to your mind? I would say I, I retained less than 1%, although 1% of 33,000 pages is, is a lot more than I was at before. I wish that I could control what I retained, but I think the human brain is drawn to the bizarre and the, um, for instance, I still remember that uh, the origin of heroin was uh, the Bayer Aspirin Company uh, invented heroin as a cough suppressant. And it is actually a very uh, effective cough suppressant, but it turns out it has some other side effects uh, and they had to take it off the market. But they're the ones who named it heroin after uh, heroism. Uh, so that's the kind of, uh, you know, it has to do with sex. Irrelevant and fact for which you'll get fined one dollar. Yes. Yeah. If you want me to cut a check right now, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I, I like facts like that. But I do not have to live with you on a daily basis. So. <laughs> it's also often forgotten. I mean, it's amazing what Wikipedia has done to the stature of, of the, the Encyclopedia Britannica. But it's often forgotten that some of those articles were really well written. I mean, there's are, there are kind of famous editions of the Britannica where some of the great intellectuals of the day were writing the articles. I don't know if that persisted until the final edition, but no, no, it did. But you're right. Uh, the early on in the 1900s, you had Houdini writing about magic. You had Freud uh, writing about psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. Uh, so it really was, and the writing was quite literary. Literary. Uh, so it was beautiful. Uh, at the same time, it was also a win, uh, sort of a snapshot into the past because a lot of it was incredibly racist and uh, uh, a lot of it, you know, in the first edition, they said that California was quite likely an island. So you do get to see all of the mistakes as well. All right. Well, let's go to another book that also has some nice writing in it and <laughs> some that's not so nice. And <laughs> it has yet to be superseded fatally by Wikipedia or any other resource, <laughs> and that is the Bible. So tell me how you hatched this plan to become the most religious person in New York City. Right. All right. Well, uh, yeah, the plan was to follow every rule of the Bible as literally as possible. So I had two motivations for writing this book. The first is that I hoped to expose the absurdity of fundamentalism by becoming the ultimate fundamentalist. So as you know better than me, there are millions of people who say they take the Bible literally, that homosexuality is a sin. That's what the Bible says. Creationism is true. It seemed clear to me they were not taking the entire Bible literally. They were, they were taking parts. It was very selective literalism. They were ignoring other parts and cherry picking. So I wanted to show what would it look like if you actually took the entire Bible literally without picking and choosing. So I followed the hundreds of rules that are often ignored. You know, the Bible says you can't shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where the corners were, so I just grew this massive topiary. I looked like, uh, you know, uh, 
You look like Ted Kaczynski at the height of his bomb-making prowess. I definitely had a Kaczynski vibe. Um, the Bible says no wearing mixed fibers, so I no polycotton blends in my closet. Bible says to stone adulterers, so I thought I should try that. I used pebbles because I didn't want to go to jail for life. But uh, basically, I followed everything and I acted like a crazy person, which is what you will do if you take the Bible literally. So that was motivation number one, to show that the fundamentalists are, are deeply misguided and actually not doing what they say. Uh, the second motivation was a little more earnest. Uh, I wanted to understand the appeal of religion and see if, are there any aspects of religion that can make my life better? Because I grew up with no religion at all. I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So not very. So you were taking just the Old Testament, or did you extend it to the New Testament? I mostly did the Old because of my Jewish background and because that has most of the laws. But I did dabble in the New. So I did about eight months of Old, four months of New. So were you officially a Jew for Jesus at that for the last <laughs> third? I suppose so. I, I did meet with them. They were interesting. Um, yeah, I met with all sorts of different groups to see how they interpreted the Bible, literally. Uh, so that was, uh, that was the second motivation, was to see, am I missing anything? Were you missing something? Well, let me, uh, if I could just back up, and one of the ways I, I realized, looked at religion, which I found very helpful, were the three Bs. I think it was a Jewish scholar who first came up with it, that religion is belief, belonging, and behavior. So belief in God, belonging to a community, and behavior. So encouraging ethical behavior, like no stealing or lying, or, or going at, to a weekly meeting of some sort. So through this project, I did see the appeal of the first of two of those three, belonging and behavior. I, I did see that rituals can be beautiful, like Passover can be, you know, you get together with your, your family, eat some food, some of it's good, some of it's disgusting. But uh, I, I see that, and a community, belonging to a community, I mean, I think we are, as humans, we're built to belong to a community, and there are studies on how people who go to church live longer, and I don't think it's because God likes them better. Uh, it's because they have a tight-knit group. So I thought, the, the, uh, I understood more about two of the three. The belief in the supernatural, I don't buy, and I don't. And I think I was actually a little too easy on supernatural belief in my book. If I were going to write it again, I would come down harder on the dangers of supernatural belief and that that is a, that the good of religion, because I do think sometimes religion can do good, like the civil rights movement was, uh, or, or anti-slavery. But I think the good of religion can be outweighed by the bad because of these supernatural beliefs can justify just the most horrible behavior. My argument there is always that religion gives people reasons to be good, but it gives them bad reasons where good reasons are actually available. Right. And so it's like, obviously, it's great that some people are inspired to do legitimately good things on the basis of their religious beliefs, but it's just, it's a failure of a wider ethical culture and conversation that they have those reasons as opposed to the 
truly unimpeachable reasons one could have for a civil rights movement or anything else that, that we would agree is good. And I think the danger is you can take the Bible and then interpret it in a hundred different ways. So it was used not just to, by abolitionists, but it was used by uh, people in favor of slavery and say it's in the Bible uh, and that, uh, you know, Cain's offspring are, the, uh, are meant to be slaves. So, yeah, I, I think that that is very dangerous um, in that sense. Uh, but again, the, I, I do like the belonging and behavior. So I am one of those who believes some sort of secular uh, church, some sort of secular religion might be good for, for our species. So I see how you got the behavior, and we should probably talk about specifically what you did and, and its effect on you. But the belonging part, I would imagine that because the roots of your, this experiment were so obvious that you're basically you're it's not a sincere conversion experience you're just trying it on for size and trying it on for the purpose of this this writing project these communities that you interacted with how did people treat you were you pretending to be totally sincere for your interactions with them or or how did how did these conversations go well i would say that in terms of sincerity, I, I do think that I was insincere in trying to learn what the appeal of religion was. And also, it got very murky, because even if you start something as a lark, if you um, fully commit to the behavior, then your mind eventually starts to turn. Uh, so that was, a, 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 you know, it's basic cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive dissonance. I was acting as a religious person all the time, and eventually my mind caught up. It, it faded after I stopped. But I've actually found that it, that can be a very useful tool. Uh, there's a great quote uh, by the founder of Habitat for, hum for hum Humanity that says, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. So I would, I would force myself uh, to visit friends in the hospital and I would say, uh, even though I hated going to the hospital, and my mind would, would look around and say, oh, I'm in the hospital. I must be an ethical, compassionate person. And you do that enough, and you start to become a little bit better. You hadn't put any of these friends in the hospital by stoning them for working on the Sabbath or anything <laughs> like that? No, although I did stone one astrologer as well as an adulterer. Uh -huh. uh, she did not think it was funny. She was not into it at all. But yes, there. Um, so I would say there there was an earnestness as well as of the the desire to satirize fundamentalism. It was sort of those two prongs, and uh, it was interesting uh, to see. I went spent a lot of time with uh, very religious people who were open to me um, because uh, I was going in there to try to learn their point of view, even if I disagreed with it. And one of my most interesting trips was going to the Creation Museum. This was right before it opened. And, uh, and as you know, that's the museum devoted to the idea that young earth creationism, the world of 6,000 years. Beautifully done museum, by the way. Millions of dollars. They have, uh, you know, beautiful statues of Eve and Adam. Although you can't see any of their private parts because, you know, that would be, uh, that would be sinful. But... Um, what struck me there is how intelligent the how basically 
how amazing it is that very intelligent people can believe very foolish ideas. And, and the amount of mental energy and mental gymnastics that these creationists used to justify their beliefs was astonishing. I mean, I would go there. They had a whole book in their library about the feasibility of Noah's Ark. And it, it was so detailed and well-researched about how uh, the ventilation system would work, how they would get rid of manure. And um, it, 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 was a, it was an impressive work. But uh, in my opinion, it was just uh, an exercise in, in, it was just a crazy use of mental energy. But they were very smart. Yeah, it is interesting. You actually don't have to be irrational across the board to be a religious maniac. You just have to have an initial down payment of irrationality on the, on the basic premise that, say, this single book was dictated by the creator of the universe. But once you believe that, then you can put all of your remaining rationality to work trying to make sense of the text and getting it to square with all the inconvenient facts that come your way from the wider world, then you can have people who are go and get PhDs in biochemistry and view everything they're learning through the lens of how to square it with the book of Genesis. Right. And that is one of the people I met there. It was fascinating. He was an astrophysicist, and he has spent all his time doing just that. He did believe that the, the universe was billions of light years across. So how did he square that with the fact that the world was only 6,000, the universe was only 6,000 years old, and he had all these complicated theories involving time travel, and, uh, but it, it really was remarkable. I will say that one thing that, that, that made me more, that uh, I don't know if it softened my heart, but it made me understand a little more of that why they were so passionate about it is one of the creationists told me, if evolution is true, we all uh, evolve from pond scum. And how can you have a dig how can you have human dignity if we all are just pond scum? And of course I do believe we evolve from pond scum. And I believe that you can have I actually think it's inspiring that we've come so far from pond scum. But but not only that, we have a fair amount of pond scum in us still. If you just right. look at the you know, every person's microbiome. The, the ratio of bacterial cells to human cells in any body is something like 10 to 1. It's just a crazy, I mean, it's a crazy place to try to hang your human dignity on some sort of fundamental material difference between our species and, and the rest of nature. Well, that's it. I think that they really want to separate humans from everyone else. There's a lot in religion that's about separation. Uh, like, you know, even kosher, just separating milk and meat, separating ourselves from the Philistines. And that is, I view life as more of a, uh, a spectrum. And so I'm okay with having us be on the same spectrum as animals. But, but they, uh, they find it uh, hard to retain the dignity. So the challenge is to try to convince them, you know what, this is, you can still have human dignity without without a 6,000-year-old arc. Who were you in dialogue with mostly? Was it mostly ultra-Orthodox Jews, or did you, you split your time evenly across a dozen sects? Who did you talk to? And, and I can imagine that even among 
the Orthodox Jews you spoke with, your orientation wasn't exactly what they would recommend, or, or was it? Correct. Yeah, I spoke. I tried to spread myself around to at least a dozen so um, the evangelical Christians and uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I, by the way, uh, I might be the only person who who bored a Jehovah's Witness, who out Bible talked to Jehovah's Witness. Uh-huh. He came to my house, and after three hours, he was like, "All right, I've had enough. I'm out well, of here." Well done. But I thank you. But yeah, and then the Hasidic Jews. But I also had more progressive rabbis and ministers talking to me. And uh, yeah, you're right about the, the Hasidic Jews don't actually follow the Bible literally. As you know, they have uh, the oral law, which is the Talmud. And so something in the Bible, like, for instance, it says that you should, in, Le- in Leviticus, you should not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. So if you're taking the Bible literally, I just had to avoid boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk for a year, which I was able to do. But very Orthodox Jews have, it's been interpreted over the years and, and widened and widened to mean do not have milk and meat at the same time. So that's where you get no cheeseburgers. So it is actually not, it's an offshoot of Judaism called Karaite Judaism does try to follow the Bible literally, but they are seen as, uh, as sort of... Um, uh, heretics. What was the most surprising or a few of the most surprising changes in your outlook born of adopting the mere behavior by rote? Well, I would say, uh, yeah, I did become uh, slightly more compassionate. One thing that was, I tried to um, avoid gossiping, and uh, that can be defined in various ways. But I just tried to cut out any negative talk about anyone. And it was actually a remarkable experience because I did feel a little bit better about humanity. And the way I think it might have happened is my brain would, I would start to form a negative thought about someone. And my brain would, would sort of kick in and say, you know what, this thought will never be expressed. Let's not even follow through on it because uh, it's a waste of energy. So I I had fewer negative thoughts, and it made my I it, it made my life better. I will say. I mean, I'm still I still gossip all the time because <laughs> I'm human, but I do think I gossip maybe thirty percent less than I used to. Right, gossip is very interesting, and there's a a similar rule in Buddhism the whole doctrine of right speech and, and gossip is one of the forms of speech that is considered just not useful for building a mind and a life that uh, you, you want to inhabit. I'm sensitive to the character of my own gossip, and I'm kind of of two minds about gossip, because on one level, you, you can feel what's wrong with it. If you're at all sensitive to this, you can immediately feel what's wrong with it, because if you're talking about people behind their back, one, if, you, if you're sort of trading in, in negative stories about them, especially for their entertainment value, you can see how you're sort of just kind of dining out on the, on the misfortunes of others. And also you're introducing into the conversation with the people you're gossiping with this rarely acknowledged fact, which is you are showing yourself to be the kind of person who will talk about his or her friends in their absence. 
this can be as stark as, you know, one friend getting up from the table to go to the bathroom and the remaining friends talking about him or her in his or her absence in a way that wouldn't survive that person's company without some problem. And so, and so everyone is drawing from that experience the message, again, almost never acknowledged, that you're the sorts of friends who will dish about one another you know, in the other's absence. And it just creates a fundamental lack of trust, often unacknowledged. The rule I've set for myself is not really, a, it's not a non-gossip rule, but I, I really try to be aware of how I'm talking about other people, and I make every effort to only speak about them in a way that I would be comfortable with them overhearing. I tend never to say something about a person that I wouldn't say to his or her face, and in many cases that I haven't said to his or her face. And again, it's hard to be perfect here because you, sometimes you're caught up in, in the moment where you're, you're in dialogue with other people who are not at all following that kind of standard, and you're, it's kind of pushing your orientation around. But it's very useful to look at because we'll talk about dishonesty too, because I know you've, you've touched that topic, but it, it's, it, gossip can be really corrosive. Although I guess the, the flip side of it is, and this is where I don't totally align with the, the Buddhist view that gossip is just bad, it does serve a social function in the, the need that everyone feels to manage their reputation. If reputation management were not a problem, the door to hell is sort of kicked open in the sense that you now have totally shameless people willing to do more or less anything because they, they just have no concern about their reputations. And on some level, we have a, <laughs> a new president who fits that mold. I guess he thinks he cares about his reputation, but he's someone who, on some level, just wants to be talked about. He doesn't really care in, in what vein. And it's probably better for society that people can still be humiliated or, or embarrassed by trespassing various norms. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's, I, I think you do need some gossip. Uh, but it has to be the right kind of gossip. You know, if there's a publisher, I know, and you're, you're in talks with him, but uh, I know that, uh, that that publisher is a horrible person who lies and cheats and doesn't pay. That's the kind of gossip that I think is, uh, is instructive. But uh, a lot of gossip is just, uh, as you say, like a Roman holiday, uh, just uh, pure joy in other people's <laughs> uh, pain. And that is... That is not a good way to go. I actually just learned, this is a little sideline, um, but I learned of a, for one of my books, I spent some time with the polyamory community. I'm not polyamorous myself, but they had uh, an interesting emotion that they call compersion. Polyamory is an open relationship, or right. polyamory is also conveys some implication of bisexuality. No, it's just ethical non-monogamy. So you okay, could okay. be in any formation. Wasn't that part of the, the Bible experiment? You're absolutely right. I actually brought it up to my wife. I was like, you know, David had 12 wives. Solomon had 700. I actually talked to... Uh, well, let's split the difference. Yeah. <laughs> actually, that sounds exhausting. I really don't <laughs> relish that idea. But... um. I did talk to, during my year of living biblically, the head of the um, Polygamy Association of America, 
who is very religious and had just this argument that in the Old Testament, all these men had wives. And he actually had, like I said, it's an interesting idea. How do I do it practically? And he had some very uh, specific advice. He said, I should go out, marry the second woman, come back to my wife and, and tell her it's like a fait accompli. And then it's more likely that she'll accept it. So just pure <laughs> insanity. Right. <laughs> uh, that, that would have been a good article, though. <laughs> I think uh, your editor at Esquire might have signed off on that one. Yeah, it would have been a good article at the end of my marriage. But uh, yeah, um, if I were committed. But they talk about compersion, which is happiness at other people's happiness. So being joyful when your partner has sexual relations with another person. And I love the idea. I cannot imagine experiencing compersion whenever I think about my wife with another guy. Is this a neologism of their, the polyamory community, or, or is this a word that I haven't yet read in the OED? I had never heard it, so I, I think it might be, but maybe there's, there's some precedent for it. Uh, but I thought it was a really interesting idea. And they, their argument is, like, just try to think about if you're if you love someone and your wife goes out and has a really great meal at a restaurant, you would be happy for it, even if you're not there. And you take that to the extreme and you should be happy if she has a vibrant sex life with someone else. And it's an interesting idea. I cannot do it myself, but maybe the world would be better if you could. It is a pretty Buddhist idea as well. I mean, the, 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 the Buddhist term for that attitude, it's, it's rarely thought of in the context of extramarital sex, but the name for the mental state of being happy, being made happy by the joy of others is sympathetic joy. Mm, I like that. It's more or less the way love feels in the presence of, of another person's joy. When, you, when you're in the presence of another person's suffering, you feel compassion. But to be made happy by the smile of, of someone you love is obviously an experience we all share. And then to extend that to all possible reasons why she could be smiling seems like a, a fairly heroic act, <laughs> given the level of jealousy many people feel. I mean, I think it is a level, because I do think schadenfreude is one of the worst emotions out there. Have you been able to cultivate this sympathetic compassion in yourself? Yeah, but it's just there are conditions where it comes up against something else you seem to really care about, like something like monogamy. But yeah, no, I, I can understand it even in that context, I mean, just imagine if you're, you know, if you had some terminal diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. And just what sort of person would you be if you, you found out you had six months to live and now you're having to envision your, your wife's life going on for decades after you? And I don't know, do, do you have children? Mm -hmm. So you have, you're picturing your wife and your children living long lives after you're gone then what do you hope for her in that context? Do you hope that she meets some man who she's happy with and who, who's a great stepfather to your children? It's pretty easy for me to get there. And obviously, I don't want to think about that happening. I mean, I wouldn't be made happy by this happening. But it's pretty obvious to me that should I find myself in that situation, the only rational and, and decent ethical commitment is to want my wife and children to be as happy as possible going forward right? and, and, and not be made needlessly miserable by my absence. Well, I, I think that is one, uh, one advantage of not believing in an afterlife or, or a soul 
is that I really, since I believe that when the lights are out, the lights are out, what happens after that has absolutely no impact on my my joy or pain. So I've actually given some thought to this, and I, I told my wife I, at my funeral, it's totally up to you, even better, crowdsource it, ask what people would want. Do they want a speech? Do they want uh, just, just drink? Whatever they want, whatever would give them the most happiness is what you should do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need not take this in a morbid direction. <laughs> Presumably, you and I are both healthy enough for the moment to be jealous husbands. And on the topic of health, I, I, if there's more to say about the, the biblical experiment, I, I want to say it, but I, I do want to touch your, your experiments in health as well, because obviously that's of interest to, to every person who does not want to die. <laughs> yeah, so that one came about because I did not want to die, as you say, uh, and I, I was pretty unhealthy for most of my life. I, I sort of saw my body as a, a way to carry my brain around. I didn't give much thought to it. I wasn't traditionally fat. I was more what they call a skinny fat, so I, I, my body looked like sort of a snake that swallowed a goat. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to, uh, I, I think there's a lot to uh, being healthy and the, the links between health and emotions and, and brain. So even if I was just doing it for uh, a better mental state, uh, it was important. So I decided to do a similar project to the Bible where I wrote down hundreds of pieces of health advice and I, um, I tried to follow them all. So I revamped every part of my life, my exercise regimen, my, my diet, uh, uh, the way I slept, my sex life, the way I went to the bathroom. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea that, that our Paleolithic four parents were, were squatters, not sitters. So I, um, I did everything possible. Uh, it was supposed to be a year, but I was so out of shape it took me two. And it was a really interesting uh, experiment, and it did change my life somewhat. Um, and it also made me realize. Did you did you measure the change in in terms of body fat and blood work and all that? I did. I did. I went. I mean, part of it was being uh, aligned with this uh, the quantified self movement, uh, which uh, Kevin Kelly, your former guest, was part of. And uh, yeah, so I definitely I went in all the right directions. I did feel better, but I also discovered just. The, uh, the shocking amount of bunkum uh, and, uh, and quackery in the health world, uh, that might have been the most useful takeaway, actually, is, uh, is just this being able to spot a little better this, the absurdities that are passed off as science. So if you had to summarize your beliefs now about the best health advice, how would you say someone should live so as to cheat death most reliably? Well, I think one of the lessons was that I could pretty much summarize it in a, in a paragraph or two. Uh, they wanted me to write a health uh, column for Esquire, and I, I, want, I, I was like, all right, but I'll, it'll be the same two paragraphs pretty much every month. I'm not sure anyone will want to pay attention. But um, the, the basic idea is... Uh, it's very simple. Move more, eat less. Um, and when you do eat, eat real food. 
I do believe that um, that processed carbs are are some of the worst. They, I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, don't smoke. Get a lot of sleep. There's increasing evidence how important that is. It affects everything from job performance to driving to your IQ at the, uh, the day after. And uh, uh, don't hit yourself in the forehead with an axe. Uh, it's it's really quite quite basic. Uh, but uh, but there are millions of people trying to make money by selling some sort of secret, uh, and you know there's like Goop is perhaps the biggest violator that comes to mind, and uh, Goop being Gwyneth Paltrow's company, right? With this, the insanity that they try to peddle, uh, and Doctor Oz, I've actually been on his show, and I like him as a person, and I think. He's, he's probably a great heart, heart doctor from all I've heard, but he kind of ran out of things to say. He ran out of real advice and he got into the, the whole, uh, I don't know if he's done homeopathy, but he's done a lot like that. Well, wasn't he? He was now, now we can get into gossip mode, but uh, I'm, pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I won't say anything about him that I, I wouldn't say to him on this podcast. Was he prosecuted for some, something he touted that turned out to be? Purely fictitious. Oh, I wish I knew. I can't. I think that there was there was something, but yeah, he has sort of gone down the path of recommending miracle berries or something that that lead to fat loss or something unseemly for a real doctor. So, what was your as far as the dietary advice? Where did your research take you on the question of eating meat versus being a vegetarian versus being a vegan? Well, I am actually a vegetarian, but for ethical reasons. Uh, more than health, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and this gets to basic epistemological uh, uh, concerns, because I think people like Gary Taubes, who I quoted in my book, are very smart, and he's very much into the idea that the cholesterol hypothesis is wrong, and uh, he's sort of a, an advocate of the low-carb movement. So you've got Gary Taubes and the low-carb movement on one end of the spectrum, and then you've got uh, books like The China Diet on the other, which say that eating purely vegan is the way to a long life. From what I can tell, it seems to me that the mostly plants does at this point have the most evidence, scientific evidence behind it. I know that Gary and many of his uh, folks will disagree with that, but one thing that they both agree on is that processed carbs are terrible for you. So staying away from processed carbs and just eating real food, even if they both agree that it should be real food, so whether that's real meat or real vegetables. But it get, basically got to the idea, I did not have the time to spend three years like Gary investigating whether the cholesterol hypothesis was true. Uh, and I think he's very smart, but for me, in terms of health, I like to think of it as almost like the, the Rotten Tomatoes model for deciding what's healthy. Um, because you can always find an outlier who says, bacon is good for you. You should eat bacon three times a week. There are just so many quacks with great uh, academic pedigree who will say the craziest things. So you've got, you've got to look at the, the meta-studies and the meta-meta studies, and you've got to so for me, it's looking at what 100 reputable scientists say and sort of taking 
the middle of what they say, the the Rotten Tomatoes approach. So if 80% say that uh, it is uh, it mostly plants, it has the most evidence now, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. It's quite humbling from a scientific perspective how little consensus there is on some very basic questions about diet. So I had Gary on the podcast, and it's amazing what happens when you touch this topic. I I thought I knew what it was to hit whatever third rail I hadn't yet hit as a topic (laughs) of controversy, but you know, now I get Gary's hate mail, and it's it's amazing how energized people are oh, around. The, so you're saying diet. I should be prepared for. Lots yeah, pre- of... I don't know how much how hard it comes in the other direction. I mean, the, the there's a a vegan mafia out there that will uh, <laughs> will hate you if you dignify the claim that eating some meat is probably healthier than than eating none. I do want to to define health because I do think there's a lot of evidence that a very low low carb diet high protein diet will help you lose weight in a shorter period of time. What I don't think that there's a lot of evidence on is that this will make your lifespan longer. And since uh, I'm I'm married and sadly, I don't care as much about my waistline as I should, I'm more interested in the lifespan, which I know is linked to obesity, but it's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. But it it is amazing that the, I think the only totally uncontroversial statement about diet that can be made now. The statement about which everyone will uh, nod their head in a scent is that eating less sugar is generally a good idea. Right. right? That no, one, no one's advocating that you eat more sugar, as in, you know, more food with added sucrose. And that's pretty much where consensus ends. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, even salt is, uh, there's yeah. no clear consensus on that. Yeah, yeah. I will say in terms of diet, uh, I am very excited for clean meat and, uh, you know, lab-grown meat. As am I. I think that could be a huge game changer. Ethically, that feels like the lever that would move the world if, if we can build it and, and pull it hard enough because just to take suffering animals out of the equation entirely and yet allow everyone to eat meat if they want it, that would be huge. Although I guess there is an interesting ethical wrinkle there where if you imagine that the lives of farm animals or some class of farm animals are better than no life at all, right? So if you imagine that it's possible to give farm animals, you know, even raised for slaughter or raised to produce milk, if it's possible to give them lives worth living that are you know better than not existing in the first place, well, then canceling this industry by finding some technological workaround to produce meat and, and milk without animals is a net negative from that point of view. But I would say that from what I understand, the life of the average industrial farmed animal is not worth living, that the pain yeah. outweighs the, the pleasure. So that uh, if we are able to do cultured meat, then we can, sure, we can have a bunch of cows having a, a wonderful life uh, and uh, outside of the factory farms. So, um, I mean, I'm excited yeah. because it also opens up, it, it, you don't have to just eat cow meat or chicken meat, you can eat rhinoceros meat or a, any uh, endangered species. And I've even, uh, there's a friend of mine who wrote a book about this, and there's talk of ethical cannibalism. Right. 
Right. I was going to suggest your next book topic could be <laughs> listen, the cannibal diet. If anyone wants to eat me, I'm I'm listen. I am pleased to offer up my cells. If we can recover some DNA from the shards of the cross, you can you can eat the body of Jesus for real. <laughs> there you go. So, is there anything that you are doing now that you weren't doing before that book that is that you are sure is leaving you better off? Well, I would say that there are, yeah, there are a whole bunch of things. Uh, I'm, one is I do, I am one of those people who works on a treadmill, which looks ridiculous. Um, I have, uh, you know, I, I, I think that stress and sleep are, are very underrated. People focus way too much on, uh, on the diet and exercise elements. Uh, so managing stress has been a big one. And also, even though the idea of what is healthy is is pretty simple. The tactics we apply to be healthy, those can be very sophisticated. So uh, there was one I did during the year, which you might have heard of, this sort of blackmailing yourself idea. So I, I used to eat these uh, mango, dried mangoes uh, constantly. Uh, and they, they sort of masquerade as healthy because they're fruit, but really they're just concentrated sugar. And so I, I used this technique developed by a Yale professor where I, I, I told my wife, if I eat another mango, dried mango this month, then you have to, uh, I, I have to donate the $100 to a charity, but not any charity. It has to be an, an anti-charity, a charity you hate. So I, had to, I would have to donate to the American Nazi Party. And that is really effective this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I do try these techniques as well. Also thinking of your older self. So trying to think of be kind to your future self uh, and almost treat him or her like you would treat a, a friend. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting heuristic. So do you do anything specific to contemplate your older self? Do you, I mean, is there, is there more to it than just invoking that simple concept? Well, I actually did take it kind of to the extreme. I don't know if I recommend this to any, everybody, but there are these apps that will age your photo. So I took a photo of myself and I aged my face. So I looked, you know, 83, printed it out, and I do have it over my desk. Wow. And weirdly, I do find it somewhat motivating. So if I'm thinking, should I have this third Pop-Tart? I say, you know what? I got I to gotta treat my older self uh, with a little more kindness. And I know that you have some interesting thoughts about self and that we are not the, there is no such thing as oneself. So, uh, and I, I kind of agree with that. So I, I am actually, I see this as a separate person that I should be kind to. Yeah. The paradoxes of identity are, are famous and interesting and, and very difficult to resolve. And for those who are, uh, interested to, to think about this deeply, I, I always recommend Derek Parfit's book, Reasons and Persons, which I, I discuss a little bit in my book, Waking Up, on, on the topic of the self. But Derek Parfit is the philosopher who gave us um, you know, his version of, of what most people think of as like the Star Trek transporter thought experiment, where you, you, know, you could decompose a person's atoms and beam them elsewhere or beam all the information elsewhere and then re reassemble him or her with all the memories intact is that the same person and there, there are ways to describe that where it seems pretty straightforward it's the same person and there are ways to de 
describe it where it's absolutely clear it's it can't be the same person. So I, I, I go through that in waking up. But in some sense, your future self is just like that, just like somebody who was teleported into the future and reassembled. And it's not straightforward that it's you. It's not straightforward that it's not you. But at the very least, it's someone for whom it's it's quite rational to have a fair amount of concern and to do whatever you can to prepare the ground for that person to be healthy and happy. And I think about this too, in that if I met my teenage self now, I think I would, would hate him. I would think mm -hmm. he's a self-centered, egotistical idiot. And then, and conversely, if my teenage self met me now, he would think he was a sap, uh, just a sentimental uh, old fool. So it, I do think that um, I, I very much buy into this, that we are different people as we age. That's actually very interesting. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone notice that in the midst of that kind of thought experiment. I, you know, ma many people are asked the question, you know, what would you tell your your former self at age 25 or so right? by way of advice. And I've heard many people answer that question. I think I've been asked that question before and have answered it. But I've never heard someone say, which when you say it, it is actually fairly obvious, that it would be possible to meet this person and actually not like him, right? <laughs> like, like there's enough of a difference. You know, I think people easily imagine envying their younger self that you know the opportunity to to be young again and do something better than he did but or do something earlier than he did or be you know be be guided by the wisdom that you the future self are prepared to dole out but if you just imagine that this encounter and you meet a former self who was you know much more self-involved and much less ethical say i mean it, it's interesting to consider just as you say, not actually liking the person and having that be returned. <laughs> now you're this this old guy who is uh, no fun at all. That's well, interesting. It, it is interesting. I mean, it is. Um, uh, I don't want to gossip about my former self, <laughs> but it, it, he really was a, a bit of a, a jerk. And uh, I think to me, one of the greatest values now is the ability to. Uh, shift your position, given evidence, the idea of, you know, uh, flip-flopping in the positive way. So to me, that just makes this idea of your former self much, much starker, that my views have really changed. They've evolved. Sometimes they've flipped. I, I think I was a nihilist back then. Uh, you know, uh, there's no God, therefore why have any morality? And I've really switch that up. And now I think about morality, it takes up a huge amount of my brain space. Uh, so um, I like the idea of, I think it's a, it's a very good thing for people to be able to change uh, fundamentally their position based on new evidence and thought. And it's, it's interesting to consider engineering that change. I mean, m much of what we, we do obviously changes us inadvertently you you just you have new relationships and new insights and and you get older and you you your opinions and beliefs change they they evolve they and and it all goes in a direction hopefully that 
you don't regret, but it, it seems like a, a it seems like some form of progress. But it's rare that we consciously conceive of a change that we that seems like it would be good for us and aim at it even though we don't currently want to be that person. This is something that I've been thinking about when thinking about artificial intelligence and, and designing values into intelligent systems and ultimately being able to change our own values, to be able to intrude into the, the human brain and change whether you find something disgusting or, or objectionable. So to take this out of the moral domain for a moment, imagine being someone who finds broccoli disgusting, but you understand rationally that broccoli is actually pretty good for you, and it's often served, and it would be an easy way to eat vegetables. Would you want to actually change that about yourself if, if you could? Would you, want to, would you want to actually like broccoli if you currently find it disgusting? And you could extend this analysis to everything else. We can turn a couple of dials in your frontal cortex, and now you're this sort of polyamorous person who not only doesn't care, but is just connected to the happiness of, of the one you love without any kind of boundary. At some point, those kinds of changes, I think, will be on the menu for us. And so you're, so you're thinking about changing to a state that you currently find undesirable, but, but you have some other rationale for pointing yourself there. And, and it seems to me that we, most of our change is almost entirely haphazard. And we just find in retrospect that we, we no longer want the things we used to want or, or we want different things. But I think we're, if we live long enough, we will find ourselves in a future where tweaking our source code is, is more and more something that's on offer. I love that idea. And I've actually given a lot of thought to this as well. Um, and uh, For instance, with Jonathan Haidt's theory of the, of the core values, I think, for instance, it, it is true that some people are obsessed with purity, and that's very a very deep value for them. But is that a good value for all of society? If we could get rid of that, if we could, uh, or at least dial it down a lot, would more people be happy? Um, and I believe, yes, I think that the, the purity value is, is, is not as conducive to mass happiness as other values. So um, I agree. And, and I always, uh, I question how much, uh, even before we, we use CRISPR to reprogram our genes, how much can we change our, um, our, our basic drives? Like, for instance, I have made a I, I've, I think for most of my life, I've been a germaphobe and very obsessed with purity. Uh, that changed when Donald Trump became president, and he is a germaphobe. <laughs> and rationally or not, I wanted to be nothing like him. So I made a conscious effort to get rid of my germaphobia, and I have made a lot of strides in it, you know, partly by just exposing myself uh, to it. And partly just by rationally thinking that what are the odds of me getting a terrible disease if I don't wash my hands uh, 50 times a day. Uh, so I think we do, even before CRISPR, we have the ability to change our values somewhat. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So there's the, your current book that I want to get to, which, which really goes to this 
the concept of our extended self in a way. But I, I want to touch the topic of honesty because you wrote an article about radical honesty a while back, and I have my book lying, and I don't know if we have different conclusions here, but talk to me about your experiments in honesty. Yeah, I am very interested in talking to you about this because um, I think we agree on, on most things, but differ maybe a little. This was, uh, I, I decided to investigate this movement called Radical Honesty, which was founded by a psychologist in Virginia named Brad Blanton. Um, and he says that we should never lie, but he goes further. He says that whatever's on our brain should come out of our mouth, no filter. So it's almost like that movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. So if, if you have a crush on your wife's sister, you should tell your wife and you should tell her sister. You just, I think you magically just found the worst case scenario. Was that, <laughs> I, I, I read the article when it came out, but I forgot. Was that actually one of the examples that upended your life? No, actually, my, my wife has two brothers and I, I'm not gay. So uh, well, you were spared purely by accident, I, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did encounter quite a few. I mean, just every day is a, a, a nightmare scenario. I would, we went to a restaurant and we ran into some of my wife's friends from college and uh, they were so excited to see her. And they said, oh, we should all get together, have a, a play date with our kids. And I, had to say what was on my mind, which was, you seem like nice people, but I really have no interest in seeing you again uh, because <laughs> I have <laughs> my friends from college that I never see. So, uh, I, and, and in one sense, it was... Paradoxically, I'd like to have sex with a few of you. <laughs> That's true. I did not say that, but maybe I should have. So how far did you take this? You had to have censored some things, right? It would just be too painful to run the experiment to the bitter end. What percent of the program did you actually run, would you say? I would say, I mean, I, I tried really hard to almost do everything. Yes, as you say, there were a couple of times I censored, and I can go into those. But you brought up wanting to have sex, and that was a, an extremely awkward uh, situation because I, I do think, you know, we are sexual creatures. Uh, but but it's really the the... the being there's a very fine line between being honest and being creepy and and being a sexual harasser so that was uh that was tricky uh and i and i will say here's an example of where i drew the line and and you may disagree with this but there was a an older man who sent me some poems that he was very proud of since i'm a writer and um you know he was he was kind of elderly not in good health and he asked me my opinion, and I just could not bring myself to tell him the truth, which was that I thought they were horrible and, uh, you know, just a waste of time. <laughs> so I, I lied, and I said, you know what, I think, uh, I, I maybe tried to hedge it and say, you know, I think some people would really like these. Uh, I can see you put a lot of energy into them, that kind of stuff. But I, I, I definitely uh, lied. Uh, and. And, and I, I read your article or your book, which I loved, but I wonder how you would have handled that situation. Well, yeah, I'm definitely not of the radical honesty school. I'm not someone who thinks that you need to broadcast every crazy thought that comes through your head, because on some level, I mean, even there, that it's hard to know what the truth is because you're so 
labile and incoherent as a congress of minds, that you can think one thing and then you can think it's opposite an hour later, and you're not actually converging on anything deep and coherent if you could actually broadcast your thoughts as though on, on a loudspeaker. And also, it's, it's just kind of the litmus test for basic human sanity that you don't. I mean, the people who can't keep from saying what they think out loud are the people who are talking to themselves in public. And so to emulate that as much as possible doesn't seem like a good ethical program, and it's definitely not a way to build good relationships. But as you know, I'm against lying in almost every case. I mean, I do think there are conditions where a white lie is certainly tempting. The litmus test for me is say what is true and useful. If the truth, or, or if there are truths that are not useful, or not only not useful, they would be harmful, well, then there's no obligation to say them unless someone really demands it, unless there's some sort of overriding value where the person is asking for the truth and you think your opinion is actually true and useful. You can craft the scenario where it's maximally difficult to deliver the truth, but even in this case, you can always hedge in ways around, like, you know, if the topic is poetry, well, you're not giving necessarily some deep truth of the universe, you're talking about your opinion. And your opinion might not even be that informed with respect to poetry. There are just clearer cases where it is a matter of giving or withholding facts. Like, if you know somebody's spouse is cheating on them, you're making efforts to conceal that. You know, you, now you're part of the plot on some level because you find it too painful to divulge the truth. That's a, just a very clear case of, are you going to lie or tell the truth, and, you know, when asked. In any case, I view it as the goal really is to help people. The goal isn't to harm people. So this radical honesty does seem like a way to be harmful very often, given the character of all of our minds and given how strange it is to broadcast every fleeting opinion, impression, reaction as though it were worth saying. If you're saying everything that's on your mind, you're promoting just these apish and truly fleeting mental states to the status of this is something in our relationship that we need to talk about. That can't help but be deranging of relationships and society if everyone was doing it. Right. I mean, there's a lot in there. Uh, just to address a couple of things, I agree 100%. Uh, as I said in the article, I, I love my wife maybe 90% of the time, and I just hate her 10% of the time. Uh, but if I spoke up every one of the, every moment during that 10% of the time, it would just be toxic to our relationship. So there's really no need for that. Um, I think we agree, basically, you know, it's all about whatever will cause the greatest happiness. Um, I think I'm probably more willing to believe that, uh, that lying sometimes does cause the greatest happiness. Because, you know, what if this guy has a week to live instead of two years to live? Uh, you know, I, I would think him going to his grave thinking, yeah, I'm, a, you know, I had a good life. I, I wrote some nice poetry. That would be, even though it's, it's not true, that would make him happy. And I'm okay with that. I will say one takeaway I had from that experience was I, I did uh, become a fan of sort of radical positive honesty because it's not all about brutal honesty and, you, you know, your ass looks fat in that dress. It's also, I remember I was just 
working on an article and I was thinking back to my first job at a tiny newspaper and this editor who was really very helpful and, and gave really shaped my writing. And so I decided to to call him and thank him and tell him what a, an impact he had on my life. And it was a little weird because I hadn't talked to him in 10 or 15 years or whatever, but I, I certainly felt good about it. And I, and hopefully he did. He wasn't too freaked out. Uh, uh, so I think this idea of radical positive honesty is, is useful. Right. We're having this conversation in the, what is a, now a fairly unusual context where this tsunami of sexual harassment claims and, you know, proven and yet to be proven has just engulfed the media. So, you know, this is post Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. and everyone else, and there's now a long list of transgressors. This is not a topic I've dealt with on the podcast yet. Going to have someone on, presumably a uh, highly articulate and very qualified woman journalist who's on top of this to talk about this. But your radical honesty experiment would have landed you in, should you have been surrounded by people who you found attractive and just kept telling them, would have landed you into a kind of immediate reputational emergency given what's going on now. How do you view this moment as a journalist and what strikes me as an, a genuinely real difficulty here in distinguishing inept flirtation or just unrequited interest in, you know, let's say office culture from sexual harassment or something that would fall in that category? Mm, yeah, I'm very glad I did not do this experiment now because I do think I would have been, uh, because I did, I remember having a lunch with an editor and I told her I remembered that the first time we met, she wore a sleeveless dress and that, uh, you know, it's creepy. And uh, I, I, I would never say that normally, but I was doing this experiment. Um, I would say it's a very complicated time. What, one thing that I've given a lot of thought to is this idea that, um, that I think it is a huge problem, men, uh, sexually harassing women. I think it causes a tremendous amount of pain. Um, I also wonder, that is there any time... I don't work in an office, thank God. I just work at home with my wife, so I can talk about sex whenever I want. Not that you'll listen. Hmm. But, um, but I do think it's interesting that this se sex is such a huge part of life. It's, it's one of the main drivers. And to have eight to 10 hours a day where you cannot even bring up the topic without fear of repercussions, uh, it's, a, it's a, weird, a weird situation. I, but I totally understand it causes a lot of pain. So is there a way that we can make it okay for people to talk about, uh, you know, not hit on your coworkers, but to talk about this very basic human function in an even while you're working. Is there a way to make that possible? I don't know if there is. It really is a, a riddle that people are going to have to figure out how to solve. I, I will say that I met my wife at work. Uh, she was in a separate department. I was a writer and she was an, uh, an ad salesperson. So that was, so, in a sense, that was the church and state. You weren't supposed to uh, uh, to interact with that person, but that was a different type of sin. Um, than sexual harassment. So, uh, but yeah, it is, 
I, I don't know the answer. I don't know what would what would be the cause the greatest happiness for the greatest number. It's just it's a it's I, I'm I want to listen to your uh, your podcast with that woman to figure it out. I'm looking for her now, so I will uh, I'll let you know. <laughs> as far as the honesty goes, I, I think we pretty much agree. I mean, it would just be we might find edge cases where our intuitions diverge a little bit, but it just feels to me that the radical honesty experiment is pretty misguided. Do you have anything good to say about it in the end, or was it just a life deranging experiment? <laughs> well, yeah, I do have. Uh, one is the radical positive honesty. So saying these things that you normally wouldn't say, especially as, as a man who's mostly been repressed emotionally throughout his life. So being much more honest with my emotions and my, my admiration for people. And the second thing, which you don't need radical honesty for, but just the liberation of not having to remember your lies is a, it's a sea change. It was really remarkable, the feeling. I, I didn't realize how much of my mental energy, my bandwidth was taken up remembering who I told what to. Uh, so that was, that was a, a wonderful part of it. No, yeah, that's enormous. And people are just unaware of the cognitive overhead required to keep their lies straight or their shadings of the truth straight. Something that, again, I, I had this epiphany when I was, I think, 18. So it's been a long time since I've had to appreciate this. But I remember the trans, I remember it, it was almost like a kind of religious conversion. I mean, when I came out of this course as an undergraduate that, again, was just entirely focused on the question of whether it's ethical to lie and was almost entirely focused on the hard, you know, white lie cases where people were very dug in and wanting to defend the rightness of certain lies. To come out and basically committed to always telling the truth, there were two features of the world that became instantly obvious. One was that almost no one is living this way. And for that reason, they're paying a huge price. The lies are enabling them to do things they couldn't possibly do without being committed to lying. You know, marital infidelity being one, or you know, even becoming a drug addict, right? Like you can't do these things in secret if you're not prepared to lie to the people closest to you. When you just look at the way people's lives, you know, reputationally just kind of flame out, like. You know, at the time I was writing the book, I think Lance Armstrong and Tiger Woods were both in the news for their line, just to be sparing yourself that pain by having your life be of a piece where, you know, you, what, what you're doing behind closed doors is not completely antithetical to the thing you're, you say you're doing when you're talking to people in public. This is a hugely beneficial change. And I can think of one other quickly, one other benefit I found, which was uh, that th there were real communication breakthroughs. I remember having lunch with a friend and uh, his, uh, he had just had his wedding. And I said to him, you know, I resent not being invited to your wedding. Uh, I wouldn't have gone. It was in Vermont and I didn't want to schlep up there, but I resent not being invited. And he said, well, you didn't invite me to your wedding. Wow. And I was shocked. Wow. I thought I had. And it was a really, it was a nice breakthrough moment, and that it, it sort of cleared away that that mental baggage. Yeah, oh, that's that's a very rich communication. It's got layers of resentment and tit for tat. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Okay, so let's get to your 
most recent book and this sense of extended self we call the family. What have you done here in this family area? Well, this one started when I got an email about three or four years ago from this guy, and he said, you don't know me, but I'm your eighth cousin. So I was immediately suspicious. I figured he's going to ask me to wire $10,000 to his Nigerian bank. But it turned out he was legitimate, and he's part of this group of people, researchers and scientists, who are building the biggest family tree in history. And it is literally millions of people uh, in dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnic groups, and all tied to one tree. And the hope is that it will grow exponentially. It's right now at about 200 million people all connected. And the idea is to hopefully grow it so we have one big family tree. And I loved, I just was immediately blown away. I loved, I had never really been fascinated by genealogy. I thought it was a little stodgy. But this was, to me, uh, it opened up such interesting avenues um, because as as I think you are, I'm I'm very concerned about tribalism. I think it could be the biggest problem we face because it gets in the way of all solving all the other problems. And this, I thought, maybe this is one way to lessen tribalism is to sort of reconceive of ourselves as as that very simple childlike uh, notion that we're all one big family. But now with DNA. And with, um, with sort of these wiki uh, versions of family trees with thousands of people contributing to the same tree, maybe this would, uh, would help to lessen tribalism. And I think there is some empirical evidence that, that it could work. Um, so that was the start of this book. And, and the book, was, it sort of turned into part memoir, part science, part how-to, and, and part adventure as I tried to throw the biggest family reunion ever to unite all of humanity and end all war and racism, which I, I haven't quite achieved yet, but I try. So uh, you were first contacted, was this through 23andMe or how did the person find you? This was actually just a guy who is, uh, he's in Israel and he's building a, a massive family tree and it turned out that we had we shared a, a ninth great grandfather. So he he knew this not based on a DNA sequence you had submitted somewhere. He just knew this because he traced your genealogy. That's right. That's right. But they all sort of converge now um, because the DNA results with millions of people. I think the latest is about five million have taken DNA tests in the U.S. and 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 they're being integrated into these world family trees uh, to help clarify uh, and, you know, fix mistakes, which is, can be complicated uh, when people find out that they are not, their father is not who they thought it was. So it, it brings up, I, I think with, like with any technology, there are very exciting uh, possibilities that this will be for the good of humanity. But there are also concerns that it could be, <laughs> it could be terrible. And, and yeah, you, you just hit on one, which is, probably every genetic counselor's nightmare, the discovery that the father is not the father. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a chapter in my book on uh, this guy who, as an adult, he had nine siblings, and they all took DNA tests and found that their presumed biological dad was father of none of them, a biological father of none of them. 
And it was it was like the Maury Povich show times nine. But I will say one of the inspiring things was I, I loved that the dad who knew he knew that all along this was the case, but he still treated his kids uh, with love and, and kindness and support. And so to me, that's inspired. I like the idea of, of DNA and family not being the same thing, you know, o- open adoption sperm donor, the whole idea of broadening the idea of family. And what is the easiest and most reliable point of contact with this growing world family tree if one wanted to integrate one's information with it? I mean, is it through 23andMe or is there some other way to get your DNA kind of mapped into everyone else's record keeping? I would try two different routes. One is the genetic testing, so 23andMe, but there's also Tons of other ones, my heritage and ancestry and DNA. And uh, so there's that. But then there's also uh, these sort of wiki like family trees. And there, there are several services sort of competing in a race to unite the entire world. There's, uh, there's Genie, which has uh, about 130 million people. There's Family Search, which is sponsored by the Mormons, which I think has about a couple hundred million. So if you use those two methods, you can't. And by the way, they're both of them are not without their flaws. So I would I would just take it with a grain of salt. Uh, But uh, but overall, I find it it's just a fascinating way to connect. It's like the ultimate social network. It's, you know, it's six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but everyone's Kevin Bacon. So now do you care about the details of your ancestry? First, tell us what you found out about your own genealogy, but I'm just wondering, does it matter if you go back a few generations and you find a senator or a slaveholder or a a religious crackpot, does it have any implication for how you see yourself, or does it just feel like more apes in the distance who were doing their thing? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I would say for a lot of people, it has a huge impact. They're like all these TV shows, who who am I? And they place a lot of emphasis on who their ancestor is. I mean, let me split it up quickly into two different ones. There's the, just the stories of your ancestors, and then there's the percentage of uh, your DNA and where it came from. So in terms of the stories of my, what I, what I find um, useful is, to see the ups and downs of my family, uh, because there is some, it's only one study, so who knows how real it is, but there was a study uh, by Emory University that said, telling your kids about family history makes them better adjusted. And the reason is not the dates and, uh, of your grandfather's wedding, it's the, the story, the ups and downs, the oscillating narrative, they called it. And so the failures and successes to show that uh, that our family has taken hits, but we've also had successes and you got to have resilience. You got to keep trying. So I do find that part I like. I like to find the failures in my family and tell my kids, uh, look at this, your great grandpa ran for Congress on the Bull Moose Party ticket, and he got like one and a half percent. But then he went on to become a a successful real estate person. So the idea is, uh, and and I may stress the failures too much. My kids may think that, God, my family's a bunch of losers. Uh, So I have to adjust. But overall, that I find useful. Um, 
this idea of that I have uh, someone prestigious in my background, I think it's it's a bit crazy because if you go back far enough, you know, you, you have two parents, four grandparents, eight great grandparents. You have you have thousands of people at, at the tenth generation level. So you're gonna find some some royalty in there, probably. You're gonna find some and that's what people focus on, of course, but you're also gonna find if you look, you know, you know, embezzlers and uh and, and debtors and stevedores and all uh and, and people just sort of uh focus on the there, oh, I'm a direct descendant of Benjamin Franklin. Yes, but you're also got these thousands of others people. Yeah, you're you're also not that related to them when you go back far enough. Not only is the DNA you have not deeply personal in most cases, which is to say, not unique in most cases. It's not even deeply human or merely human in most cases. We're just talking about a code which is conserved or not to one or another degree. A little weird that sort of cuts both ways, but it's sort of undermines the significance of one's genealogy or one's connection to the past. You know, I mean, to hear that half of Asia is running around with Genghis Khan's Y chromosome doesn't make everyone importantly connected to Genghis Khan, but it's a kind of confusion that's working in in the background of this opposition to the GMO breakthrough uh, so that the idea that there's dna from a tomato is tomatoish and dna from a fish is fish like and if you combine them you've created some hybrid monster that no one should want to eat anyway it's confusing to think about dna and people's lives across time right well i i mean when i during this project i i put up on our living room wall pictures of all of our ancestors and I started with this bacterium uh, that uh, the last universal common ancestor, Luca, which Richard Dawkins, your friend, talks about in his book, Ancestor's Tale, as the we all have, we're all descended from that first DNA. And, um, and, and on top of that, uh, when you were talking about the purity of it, uh, that we are a mix, we're not just a mix of... of of races, we're a mix of species. So I love the idea that we are, most of us anyway, are part uh, Neanderthal. So the idea that, oh, we are, uh, you know, I am purely this. No, you're, you're, you're not even the same species. You are like a, like a liger or a tigron. But back to your question about whether it makes a difference. Um, so there is the story aspect, but then there's this new aspect, thanks to DNA testing, uh, where they send you the percentages. I don't know if you've done, have you taken one? Yeah, I was a very early adopter of 23andMe, so I, I probably should send them more saliva and get whatever updated protocol they have. But yeah, I do have my um, geographical ancestry data from them. Right. Well, as do I, and I actually took all different tests, and, and sometimes they were, they were a little bit different. Um, were they importantly different? Or was it, were they just incommensurable? One was, uh, I took it about five years ago, and it showed me as mostly Jewish, which was no surprise, but also 14% Scandinavian. And I was kind of psyched. I was like, I told my wife, hey, let's get out the cross-country skis and have some herring. Like, I like the diversity. But it turned out it was because their database was skewed with far too many Scandinavians. 
part of the way they calculate it, just part, is through comparing it to others in the database. So then it just went down and down and down. I lost my Swedish ancestors. They all died off. Um, so yeah, and another one shows that I'm 97% Jewish, but 2.5% Arab, which I like. I like having this Middle East conflict in my body. But so in terms of the percentages, uh, as, I, as I wrote to you, I think that it could go either way. My hope is that it will lessen tribalism. Uh, and there are stories, there are stories of white supremacists taking these tests and it's coming back that they're part Jewish or part African-American. Some of them flip out and are in denial and say, well, no, this 23andMe is a multicultural conspiracy. Some of them actually have almost a Hollywood-style change of heart where they say, you know what, I, uh, I, I'm obviously mistaken. This is not the best outlook on life. So I don't know which one will prevail, but there's, there's an even uh, greater danger, I think, that you'll have, I talked to one, uh, a Princeton sociologist, Dalton Conley, very interesting man. His fear is that you will get these DNA tests sort of linked up with dating apps like Tinder and you will then uh, this this trend toward intermarriage and um, sort of a mixing of all different ethnicities will reverse, and that you'll only date people who are you know fifty percent uh, Swedish or higher. Uh, so that is sort of the dystopian scenario. Um, my hope is that it people will get the message that we are all mixed, and that you know it, it's sort of a way to battle the. Um, the whole uh, identity politics. So it could either worsen it if people really cling to these categories, or it could help diffuse it by making it clear that they're they're often arbitrary. They're arbitrary distinctions, and that we are moving towards a mix. On the genetic front, do you think with more and more information and more and more an ability to change the germline in useful ways? you think it's possible to avoid a Gattaca-style scenario where there's kind of an arms race, a genetics arms race, and essentially some sort of caste system that gets created based on the fact that this technology is not universally available or available to everyone at precisely the same time? Mm, that's a great question. I would say there is a huge danger of the Gattaca caste system. Uh, one option might be to get government legislation involved. So it's uh, it's almost like socialist genes where everyone gets a shot at the, uh, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, a terrible disease or, or getting the... But um, man, you know, the ethics on this are so complicated, I haven't even begun to figure them out. Uh, you know, who gets to decide which genes are good and, and then who gets access to them? So uh, I am, in general, a techno-optimist. That's been really tested recently. Uh, like, I used to think Facebook was, uh, was mostly for the good of society. Uh, Donald Trump might be proving me wrong there. But overall, I am still a techno-optimist, so I do think it'll make the world better. Um, you know, we'll be able to get rid of diseases. And, and hopefully it's all about, yeah, fairly... Uh, distributing the good genes and getting rid of the bad genes. Did your research in this area lead you to think anything unconventional about families 
the ethical focus we all have on on our families is that not ideal in some way? Well, absolutely. And you talk about this in your book that there are problems with splitting up society by family. You know, it's a it's an ancient tribal way to, and I'm sure it served a purpose in Paleolithic times to protect your close kin. But now it creates ethical problems. For instance, uh, the thought experiment that, you know, if I had the choice to kill three strangers in, like, you know, in the, in Vietnam or uh, Ireland, uh, or kill my child, I would kill the three strangers. I mean, it's just too deeply embedded in me. I'm I'm ashamed of it, but I would do it. So, is part of my idea was to take what what they call the family bias, the family heuristic. Your former guest Cass Sunstein talked about this um, when I interviewed him. This idea that we do give our family the benefit of the doubt, we give them breaks. If we can take this family bias and apply it to far-flung kin, to basically to the entire world, can that make a difference? And there is some empirical evidence it might. There was an interesting study from Harvard last year about Palestinians and Israelis. When they were told how closely they were uh, related, they treated each other with more kindness, and uh, with more, uh, more willingness to negotiate. And it was just one study, so it needs a lot of replication, but it was an interesting, interesting start. Mm. And so you said you tried to organize the largest family reunion in human history. What did you do, and how many people showed up, and what did it mean to show up? Right. Well, that's part of the book is sort of this adventure to put this together. I mean, because when I realized I had millions of cousins, I thought, why not? throw the biggest family reunion ever. So I did. I, all 7 billion humans were invited. We did not get 100% turnout, but we did get, we got several thousand across the world and 40 simultaneous parties in, in different countries. And we all sang, uh, we are family. I hope you invited the guy who you neglected to invite to your wedding. <laughs> he was invited. He didn't come. I'm still bitter about that. Uh but yeah, and we had speakers, and it was one thing. It, it was the, the most bizarre collection of humans, which I liked. I liked this idea of um, we had you know scientists and and celebrities, but also uh, uh, we had we had a rabbi, a minister, and a Buddhist monk, and an atheist uh, all give talks. So it was like the setup to a joke. But it, it, I I was miserable the whole time because I was just worried about what would go wrong. But other people did say that they they had a good time, and and I'm not a hugger myself, but there was some spontaneous hugging going on, so that was that was nice to see. So how how many people physically showed up at the event you were at? About four thousand in New York, and then there there were a total of ten thousand around the country. I mean, I mean around the world, uh, partly because of the um, the LDS Church, which, as you know, is big into genealogy, and I have issues with their, uh, their notions of a traditional family, but they are, um, they are wonderful organizers, and they are very kind and hardworking. And uh, so their one in Salt Lake City got like 3,000. Uh, so they were a big help. And what do we know about our first human ancestors? This is, a, again, a slightly paradoxical thing to say, because it's actually 
not true to say there was a first human. The boundaries between species are not clearly defined, but we have these phrases of, you know, mitochondrial Eve and the first atom with a Y chromosome. What is known at this point about them? Right. They were, uh, the estimates on when they lived varies wildly. Of course, uh, I don't think there's enough of a scientific consensus on um, A lot of people think they were about 200,000 years ago. They were in Africa. They were not a couple. They were, they, they could have been in different centuries and different um, locations. They were not, of course, the first humans, as you point out. There were there were thousands of wannabe uh, Adams and Eves wandering around. These are just the two whose DNA has come down to us, and so that everyone on Earth has a little bit of their DNA in our cells. Um, you know, you, me, Miley Cyrus, uh, Paul Manafort, a dentist in uh, in Thailand, everyone. So, what's interesting is. They were, one thing I find paradoxical about uh, studying this uh, genealogy is that it re- in one sense, I'm so grateful to my ancestors and, and for the difficult, hard sac- sacrifices they had to make. In another sense, uh, if I met them today, they would probably be terrible people. I would probably, you know, they were probably very tribal and uh, sexist and violent. So um, I, I, I don't think Adam and Eve were good people by today's standards, uh, but uh, we certainly wouldn't be here without them. Mm. What do you think about first cousin marriage? Oh, well, I do have a chapter on that, and I, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, I talked to uh, the head of the First Cousin Marriage Association, um, who believes that it should be legal. Right now, first cousin marriage is, is illegal in about half the states, maybe a little more. And his argument is that he, he thinks it should be legal. It's almost to them, it's like the, um, the gay marriage uh, argument part two, uh, marital, marriage equality. I, uh, I don't feel passionate about it. I'm not going to march in the streets for it. But, uh, but after talking to him and thinking about it, I do think that it should be legal. Um, and one of the arguments is, the main argument to me, aside from it just being gross and disgusting, according to our limbic system, we find it gross. Um, the 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 main argument is that it will cause more birth defects. And uh, but if you look at the statistics, the chance of a first cousin marriage producing a birth defect is about the same as a forty year old woman having a child. So. Oh, and, all, and also you can now with DNA testing, two uh, very distantly related people can both have the Alzheimer's gene. Are you going to ban them from getting married? So to me, that's a pretty strong argument. Uh, you know, I'm not attracted to my first cousin, but uh, uh, it is interesting. And, and let me just, I, I want to, I realized I kind of made a mistake um, when I said the disgust is in our limbic system. I I'm not sure that's true I, because there is so much first cousin marriage throughout history and throughout different cultures. I think it could be a culturally created disgust. So it's interesting to push it into, because you've now just opened the door with an embryo selection, but you could push this into sibling marriage, right? Because it, you know, as long as you can guarantee that it's a healthy embryo, why can't brothers and sisters get married? Which is a tough one because, I mean, it just like, every fiber of my being says, no, that shouldn't. Be, but but rationally, I, it's a little more hard to justify. 
Um, I will say that the the risk increases exponentially more first cousins who marriage in previous generations. So I, I don't want to endorse uh, it too strongly. You should look into the um, the risks compound over generations. If you have a, an isolated community where it's lots of first cousins getting married and they do it again in the next generation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then there, and there's a famous case in Iceland. Um, their naming system makes it hard to figure out who what what branch of the family tree is and they and they're so endogamous they're so uh that that they have an app on an iphone app where you can uh, sort of uh link up with the other person to see how closely you're related i think the logo is something like you know bump phones before you bump in bed uh so uh it is an interesting uh, and um uh yeah i i think that one of the one of the topics we discussed was this DNA. Uh, they just made it legal in the UK to have an embryo with three people's DNA to get rid of uh, uh, terrible diseases. So you can imagine, if, if you want, that first cousins or people with high risk will be able to have kids uh, with you know, just normal risk. Yeah, this, this is interesting. This is the Wild West and a brave new world combined. I think it's a, you have to be able to point to whose interests are being violated in order to legally prohibit something, as far as I'm concerned. To make something illegal is, again, invoking the power of the state at its most crude. I mean, to say that it's illegal means that you want an all-knowing state to be able to show up with guns and prevent the thing from happening. And that's why it's so problematic to have something like marijuana be illegal, because what you're saying is you catch people with marijuana, you, you want to haul them off to prison so that they can serve some time in the company of murderers and rapists. And it's the same thing with anything you would use the state to prohibit. So I, I do have a kind of libertarian take on most of these questions, where if you can't show me who's going to suffer or whose interests will be canceled by this thing, well, then you tell me there's two consenting adults who want to do something it's hard to find the basis to stop them. Mm. I, I wanted to get your, uh, your take on one other interesting uh, problem that will arise with all this DNA, which is um, one of the people I interviewed, uh, she had always thought she was Irish. She was redheaded. She took a DNA test, found she was like 45% uh, Latina. And even more than that, she was like 6% uh, Native American, so a Taino from the Taino tribe of Puerto Rico. And she happened to really dislike her Irish side of her family. So she full-on embraced the Latina side. More than that, though, she embraced the Taino identity. So she does Taino rituals and sort of identifies as a Taino. And to me, this is fascinating. I don't know where it's headed, but I can imagine there's going to be a huge backlash from in, in identity politics from people saying that you're co-opting our uh, uh, our culture and uh, but but I, I I don't know the answer you know what is do you need a minimum percentage to be able to identify something uh, I mean to me this is an argument why we should not be so focused on our our differences and, and separate tribes uh, but uh, but I wanted to know your your thoughts on that yeah, well, it is interesting because it sort of goes to this question of, I don't know if you saw the controversy around this philosopher's paper. This, there's this 
woman philosopher, I forget where she is, she's at York University, I think, uh, Rebecca Tuval. I did see that. Really interesting. She wrote this paper about basically trans racialism as a consequence of transgenderism. So if you can be transgender, if you can decide, you know, you're, you're, though you're born a man, you really are deep down a woman and you want to identify as one, that is much celebrated, obviously, now, especially on the left. But someone like Rachel Dolezal, the, the woman who claimed to be identified, so identified with black culture that she just considered herself black, but apparently she was as white as any other white person by matter of genealogy. And that was considered this horrible act of appropriation. But why not? Truth is, I haven't even yet read Rebecca's paper, but I've read, you know, excerpts of it and spoken to her. And it was just a simple question, you know, why is there this double standard? Why can't you decide you're black if you can decide you're a woman, though born a man? And the difference there isn't obvious. If you're going to fixate on DNA or fixate on its origin, well, then you're forced to come to the same sort of material reductive conclusion, which is, you know, if you're 98% you know, Norwegian and you look white, you know, you, you can't say you're black in any kind of honest way. And it doesn't matter how much you wish you were black, but why isn't that the same if you have a Y chromosome. Let's, let's give you Genghis Khan's Y chromosome to boot. How does that leave you free to identify as a woman? I mean, it seems like you have to use the same rationale in both those cases. And yet you got tremendous flack yeah, for that. Yeah, no, just absolutely pulverized. I mean, to me, it seems like the, the ultimately fair society would be one where, which minimizes luck as much as possible and maximizes choice. And so in the future, if you do, if you do want to uh, change your DNA, um, then you should. And my hope would be tribes would not be based on, on uh, skin color or DNA, but tribes would be based on, you know, there's the people who love Pokemon trading card game tribe. And uh, so that, I think, is a, is a better way to create tribes. But I understand, of course, this idea that claiming you're black uh, could be very offensive in a time where uh, where you can where black people are are uh, are persecuted in a way that they do not choose to be. You know, even if they say, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't identify as black," there are people who will identify them as black and treat them in a bad way. So I can understand the complexity of it, but but my hope is someday that we will be able to choose our tribes. Yeah, well, we do do that clearly in most of the ways you suggest. I mean, people take some other aspect of their life as the most important thing that has nothing to do with their DNA or their race or even their gender. You know, they just become completely fixated on whatever it is, tennis, right? So like tennis is you're going to live and die based on what happens to Roger Federer or whether your tennis game is improving. And that becomes your religion or your most cherished pastime, and it just consumes your life. And religion, obviously, this is the selling point of religion for many people, that it does transcend all of the accidental differences between people and wraps them up in a single tribe. And it does have the virtue of using the same heuristic you just mentioned, which is canceling the role of luck in society. 
the only luck you need is to hear the good word from our favorite patriarch or whatever cult leader shows up and, and captures your attention. And But in that context, everyone is saved. Everyone has equal stature or should. I mean, obviously there are religions that are famous for having hierarchies and power structures. All of that gets weird. But the underlying message is whatever the chaos of nature has done to you to compromise you, you may be missing limbs, you may be not very promising genetically, you may have a short life, you may not come from wealth, you may come from lots of people who are just carnival barkers, but you're more saved than the richest person on earth who's outside the dispensation of this faith. And so that's it's really been where religion has gained so much ground with people. You just start over in the context of the new faith if you weren't born into it. Mm, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I like that a lot. Uh, I mean, I don't think it applies to Judaism as, as a weird mix of— Yeah, that's—I was going to say, Judaism does have this material fixation on DNA, really. So, like, what have you heard from Jews in this genealogy cult? They really do care what percent Ashkenazi they are, presumably. Right, and I think, it, you know, for the really— uh, ultra conservative is, is a big problem because intermarriage uh, has uh, is on the rise, and I I don't see it uh, uh, declining despite the the dystopian scenario I mentioned earlier. So I think, and uh, I think a lot of progressive Jews are on the same page that we're going to have to separate DNA and Judaism, and if you. Uh, if you take the best parts of Judaism, which to me are, uh, you know, the idea that we should fight for justice and, uh, uh, you know, treat each other kindly. And, and there are these stories which are <laughs> in the Bible, they're insane. But if you interpret them right, you know, the idea of Moses can be seen as a uh, a story about a metaphor about freedom and uh, overthrowing oppressors. So the, all this heritage and these stories and these this behavior, you got to separate it from the DNA or else Judaism will just die out if you're just focused on the DNA. Or you just have to really just go full commitment to first cousin marriage. That's <laughs> true. Which, uh, which I'm which, sure uh, is, accounts for a fair amount of what we see in the DNA. Oh, yeah. And I say this as somebody who is 48% Ashkenazi Jew. Ah, well, through a DNA test, I did learn that I am about six cousins with my wife. So uh, we're not first, but uh, we're we're in there. Well, I hope you you feel suitably embarrassed. <laughs> Our kids are all right, and they don't. They only have one head. They seem to be lovely human beings so far. So fingers crossed. Well, listen, uh, AJ, it's been great to talk to you. You you are a man of diverse interests, and that is good for a podcast. Well, thank you. I love being on. As I emailed you. I listened to your podcast uh, religiously, ironically enough. Uh, I do listen on double speed, but I listen sometimes twice to an episode. So I'm getting the same amount of Sam Harris podcast. Well, I'm perfect for double speed because I'm a slow talker, but occasionally I'll have a fast <laughs> talker on here and double speed will, will not work. Yeah, I, I hope I'm, I'm sort of a medium talker. So I think double speed will still, still work. Before we close out, tell people where they should find you online and maybe give us a preview of what your next project is, if you want to. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm at ajjacobs.com or at ajjacobs on Twitter. My new book is It's All Relative. 
Um, my next project, which was due three weeks ago, so I'm not quite going to make it. It's actually really, it, it's, you know, the TED Talks have a TED, the TED books that come out every couple of months. And mine is that I, I, what I do is I take one of my great joys in life, which is my daily cup of coffee. And I try to thank every single person who made it possible. So I went to Columbia. I thank the people who picked the beans, the logo designer, the truckers, the people who got the rubber for the tires on the truck. So the idea is to show that there are thousands of people involved in every little thing we do. It's very global, pro-globalism, unlike our president. Right. That's the beauty of globalism. If those stories are not, don't terminate with people hurling themselves off the rooftops of their factories because their lives are so unbearable. I mean, that's, if it's a net of happy influences, it's good. If it's, you know, the worst of Foxconn, it's depressing. Exactly. Yeah. And I touch on both those sides. Like, you know, uh, the danger of gratitude is that you are become complacent and, uh, oh, everything's great. So using gratitude almost as a as a springboard for activism and trying to make sure these people's lives are better. Nice, nice. All right. Well, uh, I look forward to hearing the results of that experiment. Well, thank you, Sam. It's been an honor and a delight. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly, and you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.